0: Hello
1: and welcome back to the podcast. Today I've got Mike with me again. Hello, Mike. Good afternoon and happy birthday, most importantly. Oh, thank you very much. Didn't very, expect that to be mentioned. Thank um, you. Very impressed with your level of commitment to be uh, dashing outside to record a podcast introduction on, on your special day. That's
0: the commitment. That's what we're all about here together. So delighted to have Mike with me. And we had a conversation with David Shepherd, which was Truly uh, inspiring actually, insightful, lots of wise words and some really uh, cutting-edge comments I would say. Um, But firstly, Mike, what would be your thoughts in the last couple
1: of weeks in Gather World? been really exciting another great couple of weeks it's amazing to think we only really launched four weeks ago Uh, so just looking back on on the last couple of weeks a lot's happened even in that space of time I think for me it's the breadth of membership that we've picked up so internationally areas of the industry and also the level of engagement we've had Um, the the open rates on the emails is really high lots of people opening it every week but also the level of engagement after people have opened it, comments on blogs, the questions people are putting to podcast interviewees and people we're having on video. And it's been fantastic. And sometimes we've been worried about, should we put something out for for feedback and engagement? And we've been really, really excited by the, the way people have come back. So that's been fantastic.
0: Yeah, it has, it's been brilliant. And just having done a count today, actually, we have members from 29 different sectors within the, the global golf industry. And that's across the 28 countries that we have members in. So that's pretty cool. I'm really pleased about that. And it's it's just, um, it's an honour actually to have that many people from across the industry that are interested in what we're doing and, and more importantly, want to come in and contribute to things. So to the chat with David that we had then, what was your sort of key takeaway? What was the the biggest thing that you learned from that conversation, Mike?
1: I loved it. I think that there was a general takeaway, which was just uh, reinforced our way of thinking at Gather, which was just how open David was, both in, in terms of the discussion we had, but also just saying, call him up, uh, send him a message, and he'll happily give some time. And the more people we talk to, the more that uh, I think we we always thought that, but everyone's just saying, yeah, please, we're, we're happy to share ideas and insights. So another thing I loved, without spoiling the specifics, were the, the two industries that David thought golf could learn most from and uh, it's something that was uh, something that chimed with me and it's a whole probably another podcast in itself in terms of the, the channels and the routes that that opened up but the way that he thought about the the applications from those industries for golf some of which were relatively straightforward but some as I say open up whole cans of worms that will be interesting to explore another day absolutely it was fascinating stuff really enjoyed it and I hope you do too
0: time to crack into the podcast with David Shepard We, we wanted to congratulate you on being the recipient of our first ever Gather Global Golf Awards today, uh, particularly as Gather member
2: number one. And uh, what prompted you to
0: join?
2: Well, I, I mean, I've been involved in the beta stage uh, and sort of started started talking to you guys about what you were trying to do. Um, and, and I think it's good. I think it's needed. I think it's something that'll be interesting to follow what happens over the next few years with Gather. But, you know, I guess... The main reason was I just believe in collaboration. I believe in that. There's so many really great people in the industry that you can learn from. Um, you know, I've made so many friends out of the industry. You know, who started off as just acquaintances or colleagues or, or whatever. Um, so anything like this is, is of course, really, really great, and and that's why I was straight in and, and I think it's something that will be good as we get into talking about Denmark and being you know maybe a little bit outside the, the normal golfing regions um, there becomes a little bit more importance on keeping in touch with people and, and keeping up to speed with what's going on so that's a, another reason.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, we're we're really delighted to have you, and we appreciate all of the early members. It's great to have you in in the door as one of our early supporters. And um, what would you like to change about the golf industry, David? But you currently can't.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's maybe a few things, but I think um, I just sort of, if I was going to pick one, I think it's the speed that we do things. Um, so the speed that the industry changes. You know, it's things that. You know, people within the industry can see a long time before um, that's needed. And then eventually, 15 years later, the governing bodies or the powers that be make the change. So um, the speed that we do things right from the very top level where it's the RNA talking about um, slowing the golf ball down or or whatever that might be or to world handicap system that maybe should have come in 15 years ago and took too long to take and you know and, and right down to then golf clubs you know where a golf club sits around and ponders a decision for six six different committee meetings so all the way from the very top of the industry down to to club level that the speed that we take to do things is um Probably the thing for me that is the most frustrating and, and something I'd like to see change. And and certainly in the clubs that I work in at, we we try and put a real importance on being agile, being um quick to react to trends and and, and making sure that our board governance is in place so that you know we can make a decision immediately and, and then and then react on it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't
2: agree more with you. Especially with
0: the world that we live in now, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in technology. Um, innovation's a word that we've been throwing around to gather. We've, been put, we've got it in some of the stuff that we put out because we're, we're hoping that we can bring more innovation into the golf industry through bringing some outside thinking. Um, you know, being, being agile and, um, well, of course, there's even project management that's, that's termed the same way, uh, agile, working, but just generally that speed of decision-making can be incredibly slow. What would you suggest could be some ways that the industry as a whole, particularly if we're thinking about some of those leading organisations, might consider to maybe challenge that and actually just speed up that process?
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, we've probably seen a little bit of it through the last the last six months. I mean, the, um, the collaboration between the governing bodies has actually... That's actually maybe started to happen because it's had to happen over the last six months. So I think some of the things that the um, the bodies have done through this last through the pandemic process, you know, they have started moving faster, they have started talking to each other. But I think if, if there was one thing I'd really like that to carry on, you know, the England Golf and, and the PGA and Bigger and you know, any of the other bodies just continue to keep that dialogue really open so that so that they can move quicker okay and you may know
0: uh, mike and i we've both been right in there we've worked for uh, some of these uk associations uh, organizations governing bodies do you think that the bodies and associations in the industry are perhaps too uk focused if we maybe just park everything that's going on in the states and look at the rest
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of Europe, I don't actually think they are. I mean, I I know people. uh, I know that there'll be some people out there in Europe that says, "Oh God, what all we do is ever talk about the UK." But was it forty percent of golf courses in Europe are in the UK, and twenty five percent of golfers in Europe are in the UK? So, um, you know, any of the the governing bodies that are based in the UK and are getting subscription money or or funded by UK golfers or UK professionals are are always going to be in a better position to be more professional because they're they're bigger. Um, So I don't think, I mean, I don't think they're too UK focused. I think it would be good to get more Europeans involved in some of those bodies, you know, so that there's a more, um, a better understanding of what goes in the rest of Europe. But I think Actually, I actually think the, the the main bodies being based in the UK and being UK focused helps because you know the, there's no way the Danish Golf Union could have could afford to to employ the type of qualified people that maybe the UK Golf England Golf can do. So um, no, I think it's okay that that the industry is led by the big golfing regions. Um, but yeah i mean of course any any knowledge of europe or any knowledge of other countries within those organisations is always a big benefit uh, what what then do you
0: think about the um the learning that goes on between uk and some of those decision making organisations and the countries again maybe if we just take for example uh europe and africa um and maybe the middle east as well do you think there is a good level of collaboration and learning that goes on between the parties in all of these countries and a good level of understanding um, from some of the decision makers that really what it's like on the ground in other countries?
2: No, probably not. I think the... um i think the governing bodies themselves probably don't collaborate enough whereas i think the the people on the ground the, the people working in those venues actually will then go out and strive to get that information from peers and from from colleagues and friends so certainly when i was when i was in portugal um, i didn't seem to get the learning from the governing bodies in portugal uh, whether that's the you know portuguese club managers association or the portuguese pga or whoever else it might be so you just have to find that information out yourself by reaching out through your own network and your own uh, sort of group of contacts and 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 finding out your own way so no i think um i think the 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 bodies between themselves could definitely share more information and 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 work together better
1: Interesting. We talked about collaboration there. I was—I um, downloaded the England Golf app last night for for World Handicapping that you mentioned, and uh, it was interesting to see it's actually been developed by the New Zealand Golf uh, <laughs> Association or Union, um, which is—I thought it was great to see because they've obviously got something that works, and they've gone let's roll it out over here rather than trying to reinvent So um, Maybe that's the, the start of some more collaboration. Um, you mentioned about your sort of in your personal informal networking opportunities. How? I was going to say informal, but do you formalize those yourself in terms of who you speak to, how you go about keeping in touch with either the UK market or um, peers at similar type of establishments to where you work?
2: Yeah, I think so both ways. I mean, I've got a a network of of peers within the PGA community, so that would probably be a little bit more formal. Um, We've got some other sort of groups of Club managers that are, are also more formal, where we I was just talking a few minutes ago that we, we have a group that chat every second Tuesday and we chat in the afternoon and we just catch up on what's going on. And, and that's a good group. Uh, and then and then privately, you know, i make a big effort to to try and continue to reach out to to colleagues who maybe aren't in those groups or who are people who I've worked with before or, um, you know, people who are at venues that that are interesting to the Scandinavian or interesting to me or people that are interesting and and I try and keep up with those um, privately as well. So a, a bit of both. I mean, from my side, I think it's it's really important. Um, I think the thought of being sat here in cold Denmark in November and having nobody to call, and nobody to talk to, and nobody to get ideas from, and nobody to find out what's going on—that's um, pretty frightening. So it's it's pr- certainly I place a big importance on the fact that I can I've got a network of people that I can ring and call and, and catch up with.
1: So you were using Zoom for networking before it was cool, presumably.
2: <laughs> I think we were
1: using, I think Skype, I don't think I'd ever even heard of Zoom until about <laughs> February
2: this year. But no, I, I think, um, you know, whatever format it was in, um, yeah, we were doing it.
1: And which you you mentioned, I uh, really interesting, about reaching out to people who aren't in those networks already. And I think that's something particularly with Gather, one of our sort of founding ethoses was trying to help people who aren't in that position, who don't they might have been working in the industry for a little while but don't have contacts at the level they're maybe aspiring to or would just like to, to pick the brains of people. How do you, um, when you're on the outside and, and for people looking to, to move into the industry or move up into the industry, how do you recommend people get into those kind of circles?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the thing is the industry is actually really inclusive. If you talk to the people in there, if, if somebody just gave me a call, I'd spend... 20 minutes with them and, and have a chat with them. And I think most of the guys that I know, we're really, really willing to give back and, and give advice to people and, um, and and try and help people, you know, because people have done that for us in the past. So I, I would almost just say, if you're sat on the outside and not, just reach out. Actually, just be brave enough to just reach out because um, I don't know anybody that would say, get lost. I think everybody... Would say, yes, of course, let's grab let's grab a 20-minute a call and I'll try and help if I can. Um, and I think there's this assumption that that maybe the the guys or, or girls that are doing doing the bigger jobs or at the bigger clubs, uh, because of maybe the prestige are not willing to be open or not willing to help, but actually it's the opposite. Um, well, the guys that I know, um, are really willing to help and really ready to give advice and really ready to introduce other people. And, um, you know, because we all know that that's how, or most of the guys know that that's how they've got to the great positions they're in is by collaborating and, and by using the network and, and learning from other people. So I think it's just a case of, you know, be brave, pick up the phone, you know, drop an email or, or send a LinkedIn mail. People will respond and help. I love that you've said
0: all of that, David. That's like, it's music to my ears, but wise words, great advice for the community. Um, And I can speak from a personal perspective that it's really only probably in the last year or two that I've started to do that a little bit more myself. And I was prompted by... uh, uh, a piece that Tim Ferriss wrote, who I follow quite quite frequently, and one of one of the things he talks about in his four-hour work week is is how you approach people that are you know these levels perceived levels above you, and you know once you get started doing it, you've done it a few times, you're not really scared to do it anymore, and I certainly believe, and know colleagues and actually I would say quite influential positions maybe based in Scotland in golf Um, and they they, I don't think they think they can contact certain people and that's been an amazing thing that I've loved about setting up Gather with the guys is that you know we're now reaching out to people like you and you you know people look at the, the role of venues that you've worked at and you know that's like it's quite. it can be daunting speaking to some people, but it's actually the opposite. They're, they're, they've got to where they are because they know they don't have all the answers and they find that out by collaborating and talking to other people. So brilliant, um, brilliant advice. And uh, I think one of the, um, we, we have a section in our podcast every week, is, as you know, called Elephant in the Room. Um, and one of the things we are going to ask you about is what we talked about with the, the associations in the UK, but also something which has come up because of some of the members' questions when they knew we were going to be talking to you this week, Um, is it inevitable, do you think, that you have to move around to be, in in air quotes, successful within the industry? And, you know, what sort of family challenges does this bring? Do you have any advice for people that might consider? Because many people will hopefully listen to this, and if they don't already know you, they'll maybe go on your LinkedIn page and they'll go, wow, this guy's worked at some serious places. I'm interested in how I do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, two questions there. I think the first one about uh, do you need to do it to be successful? I think no um, is, is the answer. I mean, there's some guys in the UK um, who haven't maybe worked abroad that do absolutely brilliant jobs uh, and are fantastic at what they do and run brilliant golf clubs. So definitely you don't need to, um, but in my situation – It was very, very valuable, Um, you know, at at a relatively young age to to take the move to Portugal and um, learn a different culture, learn about working in a different environment, learn about working with different people, learn different grass types, learn about um, the tourism segment and tour operators and, um, you know, DMCs and net rates and, and, and all the things that are then involved in um, in a, in a tourism based resort and, and real estate and, and everything that goes in line with that, I wouldn't have got that from staying in the UK and, and staying at the Belfry. So, um, and then, and then the same, when I moved to, to Denmark, I've learned another set of skills. So I think it's made me a broader, uh, given me a broader knowledge and a broader skill set. but I, I certainly don't think it's essential, um, I don't think it's the only way. There's guys in the UK who who have travelled the world and and experienced and understand how um, how the rest of the, the the industry works without actually working in it. But, but for me, it, it definitely was um, was valuable to go out and actually work within it. Um, and then and then the the second question was more about the family. Um, so yeah, of course, um, moving moving families around uh, Europe uh, does have its challenges. Um, My first move was before children. So moving to Portugal just with my wife when we were uh, mid twenties was relatively easy. and I, and I would say that that definitely is the easiest way to go. Um, the move from Portugal then to Scandinavia, into um, Denmark, was different. Um, that a lot more thought had to go into that move, and a lot more planning had to go into that move. And um, so, yeah, that that was different. But kids are resilient. Um, kids, are, kids are very, very adaptable. Um, and certainly for, for my kids. I think they are growing up with a different um, mindset and with a, a sort of maybe a slightly more open um, view of the world because we've lived in a couple of different countries and we know that grandma and granddad are still still in the UK or in Portugal sometimes of the year and, and we're in Denmark and um, you know Uncle Andy might be in Africa or, or the United States so it, it gives a different view than. than um, than being in the same country, um, and then sort of advice if anybody was looking at it, just do it before kids. <laughs> um, get make that first move before children, um, because you know you need that first move to be right when you do go and move to another country. I think it's really important that that move is right now, um, and it's just so much easier to throw yourself into um, into the new job when uh, before children. So it's definitely an easier move if you do it earlier rather than sort of waiting until you've got children and then trying to uproot the family. Yeah, great advice. Uh, I can
0: I can say testament to children being potentially more resilient than we are. Uh, we've done a bit of moving my family, and uh, I think maybe our child's done the best out of it at points uh, mentally, kind of uh, dealing with all of the different things that need to be done, but that's some great words. And just digging a little bit deeper into that, at the point when you chose to move to Portugal, what was the key drivers? can you remember what the key drivers were in you making that move I mean was it what you said there that you were sort of aware enough at that point in time in your life to say I need to go and experience all of these other things or was it the lure of the the, the resort in particular that you were going to the course the venue um, or was it something else
2: yeah a bit a bit of everything so I'd been really lucky at the belfry I had some great bosses uh, and had sort of six or seven really great years of um, loads of different experiences of the European tour events. And I'd had some, some good promotions through the sort of teams there and, and was doing quite a big job. For, I was only a, a newly qualified golf pro at that point and, and was running the golf operation. So at that point, I'd, I felt like um, I couldn't go much further within the Belfry operation. I couldn't get much higher without leaving gaining some more skills understanding something other than just the belfry so i knew that i needed to move on to then take the next step um but i remember also getting some great advice at that point which was you only get one opportunity to leave the belfry which was which is a a huge place and i needed to make sure that that move was a really great one um and then just things happen you know I'd, i'd been I'd been out to Monterey on a, on a holiday and seen the place and, um, and it was unreal. You know, I'd seen it just after it opened and and it was amazing. And then, um, you know, there was another PGA pro Ian McAnally who was, who just taken over as director of golf down there and he was looking for a, an operations manager and, and things just fit into place. and, And I got that opportunity. So it kind of ticked loads of boxes. Um, at the same time and I wasn't had not said I want to go to the sun or I want to go to Portugal it was just that I was ready to move to anywhere that was the right job at that stage um, and, and Monterey was the one that, that came up and, and I was lucky enough to get the job.
1: Fantastic we'll come on to our some uh, questions from our members in a moment but linked to that we had a question from somebody um, who understandably asked us to, to keep it anonymous because it's to do with career progression, but asking what were the specific steps for people who are looking to move aside? Obviously, there's the, the ethos of looking to advance yourself and, uh, and make the step at the right time. But are there any sort of practical pieces of advice in terms of particularly if you're going to, to management roles in non-English speaking uh, nations that you can either be preparing for with a, a view that that's coming down the line or if it's an, an imminent move you're looking to make?
2: Yeah, I think probably the easiest way to, to answer that is from um, when we were at Monterey and um, and we were uh, advertising or recruiting for positions, Um, what were we looking for in the CVs of the the people that were coming? And we were looking for people who'd actually shown some initiative um, to learn about the region. So it was always frustrating when we'd get a a great CV from somebody and then we'd say to them, so what do you know about Montreal and what do you know about Portugal? And they'd go, not very much. I've been on holiday to Albuquerque once. (laughs) Uh, And you go, you know... Come on, that's 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 poor. Um, so I think if I was giving some advice there about that taking that move is is if you're applying for a job abroad, make sure the research is done. You know, make sure you know as much as possible about that venue, the venue's ownership, the venue's business model, the people that are working there. Um, you know, the competition of that club. Uh, you know, maybe the aspirations of that club. I think it's. Because if you don't do that, you'll get found out so quickly. Um, And then I think, and again, I think the way to to gather that knowledge is to speak to people in the region. You know, again, there's so many people in in these regions that are ready to have a conversation with somebody about what it's like to work there. Um, You know, when I first moved to Portugal, there was was a, a great guy working at, uh, the Sheraton at uh, Pinecliffs Resort close and he was one of the only British guys uh, Dean Nelson he's now at Hong Kong Hong Kong Golf Club you know and, and suddenly I just gave him a call and said do you mind having half an hour with us and we, and we ended up meeting and having an hour and a coffee on the terrace at Pinecliffs and he told me everything I needed to know about living in Portugal so people are really open to, to chatting and giving advice um, who were already there
0: Yeah, the key thing that's come out there is curiosity, David. And I think for me, that's something that I've probably learned the most, maybe even just in the last five years um, of my career, particularly. Um, And there was some... It it actually was kicked off by someone who was a national coach um, when I was working at the Scottish Golf. And they, they talked about how they'd got to that point when they were speaking to a whole raft of other PGA coaches in Scotland who were all looking to that person and thinking wow, they've done all this stuff now that they are a national coach and they coach these players abroad and tour and all these kind of things. And, you know, the answer was as simple as, well, I wanted to be better and I couldn't understand how some of these top coaches in the world had got that way and some of them were in America. So once per year, every year, I funded by my own income from coaching to go there and say, can I sit at the back of the range for a week and then can I ask you a couple of questions? And it's just... Like that's the reason why we're doing what we're doing now because these conversations with you like uh, you you're work in an area of industry that I've not been that close to from more of the business and operations side of things and I'm really curious about that plus your mindset around some of your moves and just with that curiosity you then start to build bonds with people, you start to make connections people then follow up and say oh by the way have you seen this you should think about this, you should speak to that person before you know it you've built up this really strong um, network, uh, support network and I just think you know, that's something for me that if if there was someone came to me and they were in their early 20s, for example, said, "How? what's the most important thing I should think about in the industry? I don't really know if you can teach it or not, but that's certainly something I would advise is, like, just be curious about stuff. Don't be scared to talk to people, like you said earlier, and just ask, you know, do some research and then ask a good question.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's amazing where these sort of relationships and, um, you know, conversations end up leading to. I mean, I think... You know some of the relationships that I've built up over the last ten years you know they are so commercially useful to the venue that I work at you know the fact that you know when we moved to um, when we moved to denmark and, and the Scandinavian we were looking to set up some partnerships with other top clubs in Europe that was really easy because we just called um a friend at monterey a colleague at, at Fincacortesine and um and we've managed to set up some really great partnerships so that our members can now benefit from those partnerships because of the relationships that we've built up before. And, you know, we now have club matches with, with the Wisley based on a relationship between, between, um, between me and John, the manager there. So, you know, these things lead to really great benefits for the club that you work at um, you know, which which can't really be bought. You can't buy those relationships. They they take time to develop, and 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 they need to be equal. That you get as much out as, as the other party does. You
0: no, know, normally, I mean, this is we could go on on for a long, long time digging into these topics and your advice, and your experiences for sure, because there's just there's so much fantastic stuff that people would be interested in. And actually, I think it's a it's a many people won't be surprised that that's also a great reflection of the number of members questions that we received for this episode um, and you know we're still in the early days of gather as you know so it's fantastic that we've had some some great contributed questions and actually we want to dig into some of those because i think there's some key insights that we can pull out there and um, so the first question would be from someone you, you probably know jeremy slesser and um, who we have done an interview with recently as well and jeremy's first question was which industry do you think golf can learn from the most and
2: why yeah, good question. I knew Jeremy had asked an easy one. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's loads of different industries you can we can learn from. I mean, I, I don't think um, I don't think it's fair to just say well we can learn the most from from this one. But I mean, the two that I've sort of just just highlighted is is retail in general. Um, so the way that really good commercial retailers operate, we don't do as golf retailers um you know to to give a sort of little example you know this week I've been shopping for some furniture for the house and I cannot go on any of my social media feeds now without getting bookshelves thrown at me pictures of bookshelves now at the same time if I'd looked at, at um a new golf bag would I be getting retargeted by golf retailers and I think the answer to that is probably no. So we pride ourselves, PJ Pros particularly, we pride ourselves on being good retailers. But I think we're miles behind um, in in terms of retail. So I think there's huge amounts we can learn from retail. Um, and then leisure, I think leisure in general. So whether it's uh, theme parks or gyms. Um, or, or, or whatever that might be, they are so much better at selling membership or selling tickets or selling whatever they're offering than we are in golf. So uh, if I look at a, a gym, I mean, gyms clearly have a need to sell membership. They turn over members far quicker than, than golf clubs do, but they're also very, very good. That selling memberships from the moment you give them your email address you are going to be targeted you're going to get hit with mails and reminders and and offers um, to get you to to join that gym um which i don't think we, i think a lot of golf clubs just stick a sign outside the front of their club saying we've got 50 spaces available and we'll do a deal i, I think there's definitely better ways and you know some golf clubs are not trying to sell membership but you know it's not necessary. But I think there's a huge amount of them clubs that are and I think they could do it in a lot better way and and I think they're looking at leisure and and, and they are much better at marketing themselves than, than we are in golf. Interesting. I'm going to dig in because this is something
0: that we've talked about when we started up Gatherers. There's plenty of times and I'm sure you, you, you I know you've been interviewed for magazines and, and probably other audio things and videos as well. Um, let's get, underneath some of the answers and work out what could we actually do to maybe start a tiny little move towards improving some of these situations. So coming back to your first answer there about the the, the sort of commercial angle, um, was a really good example you gave. What what can the golf industry do? Is there something that we can do to start? Is it it as simple as um, – sorry, there's two questions really, David. Is it an individual's role? Do you think you know? So you you've given those two answers, which probably means you've looked into that, and that therefore makes you a more valuable asset for your employer because you're looking outside of your industry for these little snippets. But do, should the should it be someone in the industry that is leading a conversation about that first answer that you gave?
2: Yeah, I think that I think uh, yes, they are. I mean, the fact that um, you know good club managers have to do it themselves and have to look outside the industry and have to then reach out to to specialists at digital marketing to try and understand how those segments work. You know, I think that means that that education is lacking within the industry. Um, so I might be mistaken. It might exist somewhere, but in the, in the sort of um, bodies that I'm aware of, I haven't seen great education for marketing of golf clubs, digital marketing, really proper use of social media. You see the odd um, social media one day course run by whichever body it might be, but actually really understanding it, learning how to do it, how to make your website um, more commercial and and more useful. I think those things are are lacking. And I think... um, Certainly any, any of the governing bodies that are trying to develop the next generation of members, whether that's the PGA who seem to be getting much more into the management or whether that's club management, CMAE or GCMA, I think more in line with digital marketing, social media, you know, paid ads, people, club managers should understand that more now.
1: I'm worried you can see my notes, David, because that's literally what I've just scri- <laughs> scribbled down, which was that when I used to teach um, digital marketing on the GCMA uh, Introduction to Golf Club Management course, I would talk about uh, Google AdWords and or, or any platform where you could do targeted advertising and suggesting how, if you looked at any other industry, people advertise against their competitors. So, in my old world, I used to work in the arts and particularly like the big uh, opera houses, ballet companies down in London would spend a lot of money targeting people who were searching for the other one, um, and you should just see the people go white in the room of like, oh, we, we couldn't advertise against our competitors and say, like, I don't know, subtly, but say, uh, don't go there. The greens are, are rubbish and winter. Come to us. And it's like, well, that's in any other industry, that's what the world does. But, oh, no, we, we don't do it. So I think absolutely there's some, some interesting progression to do there. So maybe that's another an article for another day.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I don't think it has to be um, quite that aggressive. I mean, we, you know, you can sell your own um, – features and benefits through social media, what you're actually doing is saying we're doing something that others are not. So, um, you know, if we do, if we're doing some social media at Scandinavia, we might be saying, look, um, the drainage of our golf courses means that we can still play golf in November. What we're actually maybe saying is that most of the other golf courses in Denmark are really wet. So you're probably better off joining the Scandinavian. So it's a very, (laughs) you know, but without saying that out loud, um, that's what we're saying. You know, and every social media post or every piece that we do has some sort of angle in that, you know, we want to be unique. This is a reason why you should join us um, without being extremely commercial and and having a little clip on the bottom that says join now or, you know, special offer. Or we're just subtly telling people the reasons why, why we're a really good option
1: fascinating and i think it, it ties to that second point you made about the other industries like gyms and things like that about targeting ads against people who are searching for gym memberships to say well think about golf and it leads you down the whole world of, of health benefits for golf but i think there's yeah maybe this is some, something for a future gather hack we can uh, tap into that so we've got another question from uh julian romaguera from uh, los naranos saying he presumes that uh, the pandemic this year has actually been a positive for, for you at the scandinavian with um the uh, limited travel and people being uh, more more playing at home one is that the case but two and i think this is one of the key questions that's going around in the industry at the moment is is what are your plans to keep that participation um high and and make sure you build on it in the future
2: yeah so i mean first of all yes um in general the the pandemic has been good for um our me- the membership side of our business so so um we've sold more memberships than we would have we've got people on waiting lists now that we would never have had um before so yes on that segment yeah it's been really good for us um in terms of some other segments of our business so we do we're probably one of the only golf clubs in Denmark where we do get international visitors come to Denmark to play golf with us now of course we've lost that or big chunks of that um Revenue line and also corporate events. We do about forty corporate events a year, uh, which we, we've got the space for because we've got two golf courses, and and that segment has also, of course, been um, been impacted. So, I think uh, in general across Denmark, most of the clubs that are more member based will have done very, very well. Um, we've done okay. We've done well, um, and and the one that we wanted to do well on membership has is done well. Um, in terms of what are we doing now well i mean we were we were growing in membership before the pandemic and we'd actually over the last so three or four years we'd managed to reduce our attrition levels from about 15% down to to lower than 5% which was our goal so we kind of felt like we were doing the right things before anyway what we're doing now is we're just ramping up those actions so all the all the things that we were doing before Um, to keep members we've just increased so we're going to spend more money on our retention plan we're going to spend more money on um, investment projects um, so that we can retain them so I mean to give some practical examples of that um, we've made a small profit in the business the last couple of years and we might have put that in the bank or we might have put more of that in the bank, but actually we're not going to. We're going to show that investment now. So we want to show people that when we do well, we invest and we're committed to getting better and better every year. So so a lot of places will cancel or reduce or delay capital investments. Um, we're we're not going to do that. We're going to push forward with our capital investments and really commit to delivering them, so that they can see that our long term plan of improving the the product is still there. Um, you know, I think one of the things I've seen is people trying to maybe save their way out of this this problem. Um, we're not we're not going to try and save our way out of it. So yes, we we used the government's schemes in spring we sent some people home um, but we brought them back as quick as we could so at the moment we thought that our golf course might suffer by having a few of our greenkeepers at home we brought them back to make sure that the product was better or, or at least as good as it was the previous year um and and i think if you I've heard some stories of some other golf clubs who maybe furloughed too many staff or uh, didn't bring them back quick enough, and suddenly they opened in April and May, and they weren't in the shape that the members expect. You now people can see that people are not people are not daft, um, so we're not going to go down that line. So we're going to invest, and then on the retention side of the membership just committing to do more, Um, as many activities, as many great events as we can next year, continue to improve our communication. We've invested in a sort of members dashboard on the website so they can get more information quicker, Um, more surveys. So we we survey our new members, we survey our existing members and reacting to what they say to us as quickly as possible um so again it's easy to do a survey but if you don't react on it if you don't don't do the things that it's telling you um it's a waste of time so you know as as face-to-face contact is more difficult um the data-driven feedback from surveys becomes i think more more important um so we're going to do much more of that um and then and then generally just also technology looking at more technology um We've already done quite a few new things this year, but but keeping going, um, I think this has given this little period has given golf a bit of a, okay, we, well, we, we are brave enough to introduce new technologies, and we're going to try and do even more of that.
0: Fantastic. And I think uh, there's going to be – I'm scribbling notes down. Um, you can see Mike scribbling notes down, and I, I really hope that there's a lot of the members in the – when they listen back to this, David, there's just so many good ideas and insights and, and advice that you're giving here. So thank you very much for all that. that. Um, there's there's a question I'd like to ask from one of the members, which actually spins us a little bit on its head, but from your past experience in Portugal, I'd be really curious just to hear your thoughts on this. So um, you may well know um, José Marcos Coelho. Uh, again, José, apologies if I've got the, the pronunciation incorrect, but José works for Top Tracer, um, and he's based down in the southern part of Europe where you were before His question was, a big part of the clubs in Southern Europe are deeply focused on tourism, and that has prevented the clubs to spend some of their time reaching out to local golfers to diversify sources of revenue and eventually grow the game. Do you see that the travel restrictions forcing these clubs to pay more attention to local golfers now? And if yes, then what might be a good strategy to bring more people to the course? And I appreciate there's potentially a massive can of worms there, but just curious what your initial thoughts are
2: yeah well, unfortunately, I would agree, and I would put myself in the guilty category there from from monterey I mean we were one hundred percent focused on inbound travel from um the rest of the world and certainly not focused on um national market business um, for many reasons, the volume of golfers in that region um the price point that we were we were wanting to charge um I don't know whether that will change. Um, you know, but I think it probably should. I think probably um I think probably clubs in southern Europe will start looking at their national markets. I know from I know from speaking to um some of the guys in, in southern Spain, they're certainly looking at their their national market as a more useful um or more interesting market than they were rather than just focusing on UK travellers or German travellers. Um so yeah, so I think yeah, a more sustainable yeah, market long term. I think it's it's getting the mix right so you reduce the risk. So I think if you know if, if those clubs are currently doing two percent of their business from the national market, if they could increase that to maybe fifteen or twenty, well at least they'd still have fifteen or twenty percent now rather than being closed or 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 really struggling. Um how they do that is is really tough um you know committing money to grow the game in the national in the region um certainly i'm i'm sure i'm sure um miguel at the portuguese federation he would say yeah great let's grow the game in portugal so that the the golf clubs in the algarve can do better when there's this type of thing happens um but that's going to have to come from investment and that investment probably is going to have to come from from the central from the government because um, i don't imagine the golf clubs are going to fund that but
1: it's it's a good question probably um probably too big for me that one we're well, talking of big questions we've got one final question from one of our members which was michael heard at colt mckenzie who asked is there anything you regret in your career um, you obviously made those positive moves but, but if so why you could have given me some warning on that one, but well, you, yeah I mean it there's literally came in, literally came in uh, before we started recording so uh, blame Michael
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean there's millions there's loads of things I regret and there's loads of things I've done wrong and and um, you know I'm trying to think of, of one really really easy example, but there is there's loads of stuff that I've I've um, made mistakes on. I think possibly one of the one of the ones that I would say is when I first moved to Portugal. And I'd got the, I was, what I don't know, 25 and I thought I knew everything. Um, So I moved to Portugal and I'd got this new job and I'd inherited this this new team and I thought um, I could turn them all into uh, British golf operations staff without understanding that they're Portuguese guys and they have different cultures, styles, work ethics, expectations, um, and... So I made I probably wasted a year of my time, complaining and worrying, complaining that they weren't doing what I wanted them to do, without actually thinking this is me that's the problem. Why am I not changing to manage them? And I think um, when I got through that period, uh, you know, I realized I'd wasted a lot of time and energy and frustration on that, um, and, if, and that that's probably the one thing i re- I regret going to Portugal and. Um, thinking I could change the Portuguese staff to be British staff. Um, and, I'd, and I hope I'll never do that again. And, and anywhere I go further, and, and certainly in my time in Denmark, I've tried to um, treat all the staff as individuals and try and understand their own different needs and, and not just try and turn them into what I thought they should be uh, and actually just try and improve everybody. So I think that's probably the one, but I mean, there's too many mistakes to, to talk about. I mean, we, I think they make mistakes every day and I think you have to be brave enough to make mistakes every day. And, um know, somebody else said to me at one point, that, you know, the real mistake is making the same mistake twice. And I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, so, you know, I think don't be afraid to make a mistake. You know, you've got to try things to be different. Um but yeah, if you make one and it doesn't work, don't keep doing it because that would be a bit uh, a bit foolish. Yeah,
0: and David actually relates very briefly to um, something that you gave us when you joined up. What was the best piece of advice you've ever received? And uh, noted this one down actually because I loved it. As a leader, you work for your people; they don't work for you. Um, which I think is a really wise piece of advice. So thanks for sharing that one because that's something I think is um, definitely related to what you've just said there and worth people bearing in mind.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's a. Again, it's it's probably something when you first start out, you think everybody's working for you and you think that they should do whatever you tell them and and they have to do what you say. And I think when you change the mindset and go, okay, well, look, I've recruited some really great people here. If there's something that they're not getting from me or if there's something they need from me, whether that's a piece of communication or whatever that might be, a a weekly meeting that we're missing or, or whatever that might be, I think once you get around the fact that you're actually there to let them do their job as well as possible, and give them all the tools they need to do their jobs as well as possible, and give them all the support they need to do their jobs as well as possible. Um, it's much easier then because then you you can you get the multiple benefit of everybody doing a good job rather than um, rather than one
1: or two. I recently read the article you posted on LinkedIn uh, with interest about the governance structure you've got at the Scandinavian. And it was interesting to see the, the debate that it sparked. And most people saying that, yeah, that's the, the picture I see. Um, and actually, I was reading it this morning before the call. And my little boy came in and was like, what are you reading about? Because it's got a picture of the skeletons around the table uh, of the committee structure. And I said, I'm talking about golf. And he sort of looked at me curiously but i was just wondering if you think whilst most people acknowledge that there's an issue with committee structures and and most people have sort of battles with their governance models whether there's actually an appetite to change that or whether it's just a a thing that people are happy bashing all the time without actually grasping the nettle and, and moving forward um
2: yeah good question i think um I mean, the reason I wrote that article, first of all, was because one of the little groups that I'm in with a group of club managers, a couple of the guys who work at really amazing golf clubs, um, are really frustrated by their governance models and, and and have told me some stories about some of the things that they're trying to do to, to help their golf clubs. Um, and they can't do them because the st- structure that they've got in place is not allowing them to do them um and those those managers are are incredibly frustrated because of that so that was what triggered me to do it and of course then at the same point i just had a um we have board meetings we don't have committee meetings we don't have a council we we run it like a business and we have we actually have a paid board we don't have um you, you know We do have uh, some subcommittees and and stuff, but in general, our golf club is governed by a a paid board. And those paid board members are selected because they are incredibly skillful people, um, because they understand what we want to do. And with the three of them, they support me um, to be able to make changes at the golf club to make the business better which ultimately makes it better for the members because we've got more money to invest in, um, in projects and we've got more money to spend on, on them. Um, we've also got great owners who are not taking a return on the business. So, you know, anything we make goes, goes straight back into making the place even, even better. Um, but, yeah, the governance model, we've got works because it allows me to use the experiences from the other golf clubs that I've worked at, to use the experiences in my network to make good decisions, to move us forward quickly. Um, There is absolutely an appetite to, to change governance models across, um, across Europe. Um, I think When people read that article, I imagine the golf managers will all go, yeah, great, completely agree with that. Some won't be able to like it because they'll know that their committee members will see that they've liked it. Um, Some will be brave enough to like it, and and, i will have some good committee members who might get the hint. Um, (laughs) And then then there'll be some committee members who read it and go, and this is what I imagine most committee members will read it and go, well, he's not talking about us. We're, We're not like that. Um <laughs> that's what I imagine to be honest. And I think it's about um those committees and those chairmen really talking to their managers and having real honest reflections and saying, Well, yeah, this is us, we're not business like. Um, so how do we do it? And and then there's you know, there's a lot of people out there now that are ready to help golf clubs and managers change their business models and, and streamline their business models. Um or, or governance models and it's just about reaching out to somebody if, you, if they can't do it themselves, reach out to somebody, spend a little bit of money and get somebody external in to do a little bit of a analysis of what those clubs are doing and, and how they could get it better. Um, and I'm sure golf clubs would be better off for doing that um, and and from a management side, there is an appetite for change from a committee side. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Would. Uh, thankfully, I don't work for one of them. And, and uh, it, it's, um, it's not my problem. But, uh, but I hope for the, for the club managers are out there struggling and, and we'll actually end up getting the blame when the club doesn't do well because they've not been able to make the change. I hope that there is change.
0: I, and I think by your answer there, David which I think many people will find really fascinating. And I think it should hopefully prompt and kickstart and give people that courage to do it by your giving that answer though. I think you've demonstrated why you were gather member number one, because you've actually you know, you're putting contributions out there through the article that you did that Mike referenced there, um, which actually isn't necessarily a challenge that you're facing to the same level as some other people, but you feel that you can put something out there to hopefully then just try and kickstart some conversation in the industry. And that's exactly why we wanted to have you on the show. So um, we, we've taken a lot of your time already, David, and like clearly I think when people listen back, they'll think we could – we could probably just keep going because it's just insight after insight and, and wisdom and ideas, which is fantastic. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I think probably the, the best way for us to try and wrap up actually would be um, a question. another question from Jeremy Slesser, which was quite a nice one um, to kind of tie things up. What do you think you see as the greatest opportunity for golf in the next 12 months? And what's the one thing you think that could prevent that happening?
2: Um, I think the biggest opportunity, probably two, the biggest opportunities are retaining the new golfers um, or retaining the new members. So by redefining what it's like to be a member, so if if, if clubs can um, listen to the new members, why they joined, what would make them stay, and then put those processes in to make them stay, that's a huge opportunity because clearly there's however many new golfers who have come back to golf or, or, or older or, or actual new golfers or returning golfers so so that's a huge opportunity if the golf clubs can listen to them and keep them that's a massive opportunity um and and of course then uh, and i don't need to talk much about it but but female golf uh is, is a huge opportunity so um my wife's a. Uh, uh, female golfer and a female golf pro um just launched a, a golf academy sorry for the plug in denmark but and um and she's killing it i mean it's unbelievable the and we're talking this is the worst time of year to be trying to sell golf lessons and suddenly she's got groups and groups and groups that are filling up because um because there's women out there that that want to learn how to play golf and want want to get on a golf course and want to enjoy golf um so they're the they're the, the biggest opportunities I think and what will stop them happening is uh, the the people in the industry not just, just not doing it. Um just not taking the bull by the horns, not listening. Um You know, the governance structures not allowing the managers to make the right decisions to react. And and unfortunately, what I think will probably happen is the golf clubs that were doing really well before, the golf clubs that had got the business models in place, had got the governance structures in place, have got the good managers in place, will do it. They'll react. They'll do well. Um, And the ones that were struggling before that have suddenly got a little reprieve, they've suddenly got 50 new members or 80 new members, will suddenly look at themselves and go, Wow, aren't we great? We've got all these new members um, and then sit back on their laurels and they'll lose them just as quick. Um, so I think that's the biggest danger of not capitalizing on, on this, um, this little period of, it's almost a bonus, it's almost a little bonus for golf. But if, the, if we don't capitalize on it, then it'll be forgotten just as quickly.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's an argument to be said that complacency might actually be the biggest threat to the golf industry um, and has been for a long, long time. Um, it was complacency before for other reasons and, and potentially it could be right now. So uh, thank you. Thank you for that great uh, insight at the end there, David. And just to, just to try and wrap things up, is there, um, firstly, is there anywhere that people can find you if they're looking to get in touch uh, or any sources of anything that you want to to direct them towards? And then also just um, what would be any parting words that you might want to give to the audience?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, anybody can contact me on, on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram. I'm not on Facebook, but all the others I am. Um, and uh, parting words, you know, I just wish everybody well I hope um, I hope the guys in the UK can get playing golf again really soon and I hope the guys in Southern Europe and my my friends in Spain and Portugal can start um, can start welcoming visitors again really soon you know before before the financial impact is too big so I just wish everybody well and and hope um, hope everybody gets through this uh, this next few months in a miserable
1: winter in a in a good place so uh, yeah just wish everybody well before we go, we referenced that you uh, gather member number one. I was just curious how the Danish Wigan supporters clubs going. Are you still the the founding member of that, or are you? Yeah, I think I'm the up? founding. I
2: think I'm the founding and only. Um, uh, maybe my little boy I could add him as number two, but I think uh, that's about it. Unfortunately, so um, mm-hmm. we're not having much luck converting the FC Copenhagen supporters to be uh, Wiganers. <laughs> Second team. <laughs> Fantastic, uh, David uh, from, from both
0: Mike and I and from Adam as well uh, and uh, and from the audience I'm sure they'll really enjoy this chat I've had a ball I've learned so much I'm going to enjoy listening back to this one and picking out all the insights and, and wise words from it thank you again for your time it's really much appreciated and, and thanks for being gathered member number one my pleasure thanks guys and good luck with everything
1: cheers thanks David